This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Two recent events have rocked the publishing world. First, the New York Times said it would abandon the practice of providing free online content and start charging regular readers beginning in 2011. And second, Apple's much-hyped tablet, the iPad, made its appearance. What implications will the Times decision have for newspaper publishers and other providers of free online content? How will the iPad redefine what a book means, as well as how it is produced, marketed, and delivered? Peter Fader, a marketing professor at Wharton and co-director of the Wharton Interactive Media Initiative, and Stephen Cobrin, a management professor at Wharton and editor of Wharton School Publishing, weigh in on how these developments could reshape publishing. Pete, the uh, announcement uh, was uh, uh, got a lot of attention, but of course it quickly faded in the uh, hubbub over uh, Apple's announcement about its tablet. Is this getting all the attention it should? Is it a really big story? I think it's a it's a huge story. Uh, one might wonder why it was announced just a week before the tablet, whether there's some connection there, and we could uh, talk more about that. But ultimately, I think that this story, uh, how a, a big content institution like the New York Times uh, decides to go on the web and the, the, the tactics and timing of that implementation, I think is more important than the launch of a particular device. I think that the Times touches more people than people who will touch the new Apple device. Uh, and I think for them to, to get it right uh, has huge implications, not just for them, but for pretty much every uh, news and other print media organization. Is the Times doing the right thing, do you think, generally? Yes and no. Uh, I think they're doing the right thing by by finally admitting that, yes, they need to have people uh, paying for it. I think they're doing the right thing by going about this on their own. I think they're doing the right thing by being somewhat flexible about uh, how many stories you can see before you have to pay and so on. I think they're doing the right thing by giving people unlimited access through news aggregators and through search engines. That's all great. But there's some negatives as well. I think announcing that they're going to do this but being completely vague about the pricing, about the uh, the specific timing, about the name of it, about what kind of content is or isn't covered, I think that's a terrible mistake. They should have their act together, kind of like uh, Apple always does when they make their announcements. So that's a problem. Another problem is that they're focusing so much on the negative. It's interesting that what they're doing here is is largely identical to what the Wall Street Journal has done and Wall Street Journal has succeeded with it. Uh, but all we keep hearing about is, oh, my goodness, I'm going to hit a wall after I read a few articles. The Times should be emphasizing the good stuff, the things that you'll be able to do that you couldn't have done otherwise, some value add. Mm-hmm. They've been messing around with a lot of tools along those lines, but they're really not emphasizing them in this announcement. Now, a lot of people who are watching this from the sidelines are probably saying to themselves, you know, I'm, why should I worry about the Times or other news organizations? I get my news from the web. And I've heard a journalism professor suggest that, well, that's a lot like saying, I get my, my produce at the grocery store. Why should I worry about farmers? What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I, that's, that's, a, that's a great analogy uh, and, of course, a, a terrible mistake. I think that, uh, that these content creation organizations such as The Times have a, a huge role to play. And, and even if there's a zillion of them out there, 
the, uh, an organization like the Times, they're a tastemaker. They're, they're not only creating content, but they're also telling us what content we should be paying attention to. We trust them for their, their ability to, to, to shape our interests. And I think there's a really a great and sad analogy with uh, what's gone on in the music industry, where we all figure the record labels would just go away because they're not savvy to, to digital this and that. Uh, and, and I think that even though they're not very good at marketers or very customer-friendly, I think the labels are, are wonderful in the same way at identifying good artists and, and basically telling us which ones we should be listening to. And for the most part, we pay attention to that. Uh, there's always a few class out there who would rather find stuff on their own. They enjoy the hunt. But for most people, they just want to have it served up to them. Uh, and a lot of people go to the New York Times not only to see the New York Times' own unique uh, uh, opinion on things, but just what stories should I be paying attention to in general? So what, is this, what does success look like for the Times in, in, this, in this effort? That's a good question. Uh, it, uh, the Times has hinted at it. Uh, in, in a number of the interviews, they've said that they want to maximize revenue. They just want to bring in as much as they can for the news, and they don't care which, uh, whether it's, it's print or online or whatever. And that sounds noble. But it's also short-sighted. Yeah, indeed, a company wants to make more revenue rather than less. But they don't want to be doing it over a particular quarter or over a particular year. They want to be doing it over the lifetime of the customer. So they want to be setting up uh, this service and, and the content that will go through it in a way that's going to get people to stick around for a long time and consume for a long time, not just to consume a lot and then go away. So they really want to be thinking about success metrics like lifetime value, the, the overall uh, uh, discounted value of the customer base, of uh, the current customers they have, and the future ones that they've yet to get. I think that uh, if they start thinking longer term like that, rather than just what can we do today, I think they're more likely to develop a customer-friendly service, uh, as well as uh, more refined success metrics to know if they're really achieving. Can they sell that kind of long-term outlook to their shareholders? A few years ago, the answer would be absolutely not, because like every other business, they were doing okay, and, and let's just make more money next quarter than we did this past quarter. But I, I, if, if they want to stay around for a long time, they need to be thinking long term. They need to be thinking, uh, how can we delight our customers three, five, ten years from now, as opposed to how can we squeeze revenue out of them to stay afloat over the next month? Mm -hmm. And I do think that the, that the Times is going to be around for a long time. Uh, there'll certainly plenty of other newspapers that are and will continue to disappear. But the Times brand is a really powerful one. There's a generational issue. There's a lot of people who will cling to the old paper copy as, as long as they can. And so the Times needs to count on that instead of panicking and, and doing things just to try to uh, uh, salvage revenue. I think they need to be uh, thinking further out there. This announcement is a reasonably good sign along those lines, but still not perfect. Now, there is uh, some talk that uh, the, the Times has been uh, thinking about to pay curtain because products like Apple's new tablet might allow them to do that. Uh, do you think that the timing was related to the uh, tablet announcement? It could be, and it would be sad if that were true. And I'll say that in a, a couple of ways. Number one, the Times is very, very, very late, years too late with this. They dipped their toes in the water with Time Select. It wasn't a perfect service, but it was a, it was, it was a decent one, and they should have stayed with it and expanded it and kind of stuck with that brand that they were building at the time instead of just 
uh, abandoning it and, and starting from scratch. So, so they're years late. But as far as kind of the, this micro issue, is it associated with with, uh, with uh, Apple's recent announcement? Maybe I have no idea. But as I said before, uh, this this device, while it's just really exciting and it's going to uh, uh, change the way a lot of us. Uh, deal with different kinds of content. Uh, I, I think that that getting this business model right far transcends the existence of, of any particular device. The vast majority of people who will be using this time service will be doing so on a plain old desktop or perhaps on a mobile phone. Only a small fraction of them uh, will be doing it on, on this device, as wonderful as it is. Now, there's been a lot of talk um, uh, related to the device about um, the, a model that might emerge similar to the um, iTunes store. But publishers have some concerns about that, don't they, in terms of being able to get um, direct or having maintaining a direct relationship with their customers instead of having Apple act as an intermediary. If we learned one lesson from the whole music mess and maybe from the whole dot-com revolution, it is exactly that point. It's very, very important for the content creators to have some say in, in how the, their, their product, how their service is being delivered, in who's using it, and in, in how it's being monetized and so on. So if, if I can excuse the times uh, for being late uh, in, in one way, it would be for this reason, that they have decided that they want to build it on their own as opposed to outsourcing it to uh, to an iTunes or to, to other services that would provide uh, uh, that kind of intermediary. I think it is very, very important for the Times to maintain and enhance direct contact with their readers. And again, to know who's doing what, to have a, a direct sense of, of what kinds of stories and, and what kinds of functionality they should be offering. So I wish they could do it sooner. I hope that they will do it effectively. But it's, it, it, again, it's important for them to, to, to own the pipes to the consumer. Now, assuming that the um, uh, migration of advertising from print to online continues at the at current levels, and um, uh, the time starts to collect some revenue from its online operations. Do you think it's possible for them to collect enough revenue to um, sustain the infrastructure they have, the news gathering infrastructure they have, correspondence all over the world, and also for other news organizations, more local news organizations? Is there enough revenue from from uh, a sub online subscription model to support that that uh, that kind of infrastructure? No, I think the the ad based model will never disappear entirely. Mm -hmm. I do think that there'll be a, a a segment of of users who will pay more to get it without ads. I think that what Pandora has done in the music space is a great example, where depending on how much you pay, not only controls the amount of content you get, but also whether or not you get ads or how often you get ads. So there'll be a group of people who will pay more to get no ads. There'll be a group of people who will pay less because they either don't mind getting the ads and, uh, uh, dare I say this, there are some people who actually like getting the ads uh, and it's really not a big burden for them. They, they can skip past them or sometimes find them informative. So mm -hmm. there, there's, there's still a role for, for advertising, albeit smaller. And I think uh, announcing a service like this gives them the flexibility to, to let people have the service their way uh, and I think it'll be great to see these simultaneous business models uh, exist. So the, the, I guess what we're going to see is a lot of business models emerging and maybe multiple business models succeeding in their own way and I guess some falling by the wayside. Sure. And then, of course, there's, there's a lot of micro models within the model. So mm -hmm. one of the big questions that a lot of people are, are clinging to in this particular case is, 
What about the crossword puzzles? <laughs> Will I get those with my subscription? Will I have to pay extra for them now, as, as I currently have to do? Now, that's not a big deal. That's not the, the future of the paper there. But it is a, a relevant issue that, that should have been dealt with in advance. And the fact that people are asking those questions and not getting those answers is, is, is a troubling sign. Mm-hmm. So they can put together different kinds of, of, of bundled services. Again, advertising, no advertising, crossword puzzles or not. Some of the other services they have, like some of the social networking capabilities, the, the, the Times people and so on. So uh, so a lot of these things can happen. They can see which ones will work and which ones won't, but it'll be based on a, on a market mechanism as opposed to uh, legal restrictions or, or, or their inability to, uh, to, to get the, the information technology right. Well, let's let a thousand flowers bloom. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Pete. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank you. Both of these announcements could have a significant impact on revenue generation and distribution models in the publishing world. Let's start with the Times pay curtain, which is expected to go up in early 2011. The company has not revealed a lot of detail about this plan, but it did say that readers who only encounter the Times uh, uh, occasionally will still be able to do so for free, but that readers who consume the Times content on a regular basis will be asked to pay. How much they'll have to pay, how they'll pay, and the threshold for having to pay are not yet clear. But even with one year of warning, do you think, Steve, that uh, people will be willing to subscribe or make micropayments to read the Times content online? If we come up with a means that facilitates micropayments, that's easier than giving someone your credit card. If we find a way you can just click as you do with iTunes uh, and very quickly pay 75 cents, a dollar, whatever, I think people will pay for content, but it's going to probably have to be more than one article. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of subscriptions, I think that certainly could work. Uh, The Wall Street Journal now is a subscription site. It seems to be working. I think as people move to consuming content online, as people move away from the print paper to the extent they do, Mm -hmm. and want to consume it primarily online, they're going to be more than willing to pay for it. If the Times model succeeds, do you think that it could work on for smaller regional and local newspapers. Are there enough readers who are that interested in, the, in that kind of news, do you think, to uh, uh, support the infrastructure that it takes to deliver the product? The problem is that the number of people who read a big city daily is diminished mm-hmm. tremendously over the last decade or two. Right. So the question is twofold. One, are there enough people interested in reading a big city newspaper and two, what percentage of those will pay to access the information online? Okay. So it may be a matter of scale whether or not this is going to sure. work or not. Yeah. It is possible that, uh, that a form of urban online paper could emerge that's different than anything we've seen. It may not be an existing newspaper. It may not be the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mm-hmm. It may be some source of local news mm-hmm. uh, that people are willing to pay for especially if it included, for example, some equivalent of classifieds, right. uh, social announcements, et cetera. Okay. Another revenue model uh, for all kinds of publishers could emerge from a product like Apple's much-hyped um, uh, iPad. Uh, even before its introduction, the iPad was breathlessly described as the most important tablet since the Ten Commandments, the savior of newspaper, magazine, and book publishing. It's out now. Do you think, from what you've seen, that it comes close to the hype? Well, I think nothing could come close to the hype. And the interesting thing is that the hype wasn't from Apple. It is interesting, yes. It was all created externally 
by people interested in the tablet. It's one of the greatest marketing campaigns with very little effort in history. Uh, I don't know if it comes close to the hype. I think it could. Devices like the tablet could revolutionize publishing. Mm-hmm. Okay. The the Amazon Kindle, the Sony Reader, are wonderful ways to carry books around, but they essentially it's essentially the same experience as reading a print book. It's a flat book. It's the printed word. You can do things such as adjusting the type size. You can carry lots of books in a small space, but the experience uh, is very close to reading a print book. The tablet allows for different for books to take on a different meaning, okay? One, it isn't clear that every book has to be 350 or 400 pages if they're published electronically. Uh, two, I think if the tablet is going to succeed, uh, it's going to have, to have active content. I think the number of people who are going to want to read War and Peace on a tablet simply as the printed word are limited. Uh, where the tablet will be valuable is when books begin to contain video, when they contain graphics, uh, when they contain, for example, business books, spreadsheets, models, charts that are active. Uh, Perhaps an interactive element in which you could certainly take some of the lessons you're learning and apply them to a spreadsheet. Um, or, or you can illustrate a model, mm-hmm. or you can illustrate an idea with a spreadsheet. You could use graphics to illustrate alternative scenarios. Mm-hmm. You can embed video. Okay. Now, I think what's critical is that it has to be real value-added. If it's simply fun and games, it'll disappear very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has to be uh, content that adds value to the reading experience and not simply add-ons just to take advantage of what the tablet right. can do. Publishers are understandably wary of adopting a distribution and revenue model similar to Apple's iTunes store, uh, where Apple inserts itself as an intermediary between the music industry and, and consumers. Um, do you think it's likely that uh, there'll be some sort of a model that emerges that will make everybody happy in this case? For particularly in, in book publishing, you're a, you're a publisher yourself. Uh, there is a big difference between the music business and publishing, and that if you listen to music on an iPod, at the end of the day, it's no different than listening to music from a 33 RPM record. The music is being played. You hear it. You absorb it. Uh, it, I think it's very different when you're talking about a book on a computer. If it's going to be successful, it has to be a different experience. Mm-hmm. It's not sim- if it simply replicates the printed page, you haven't solved much. Uh, you haven't provided much that's very new. Until we understand what, quote, the book, close quote, is going to look like on a tablet, it's hard to think about the business model. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, we may find that we have a lot more shorter books we may be able to have a lot of books that sell fewer copies and are still profitable. Uh, there's all sorts of possibilities. I think until uh, what a book looks like emerges, it's hard to talk about business models. Right. And, and we're still talking about, I mean, the, 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 it's not clear at all what a book is going to look like. And already we have several different technologies that we can, we can turn to for that. At this point, the single most important, important reason for buying a book is that you saw it in a bookstore. Uh, people buy books through Amazon. They buy books in all, they buy books because their friends tell them about it. But still, the, the single most important factor is you've seen it physically in a bookstore. If that goes away, there's a real question about how we create awareness of a book 
how we lead the reader to a book, how they understand that the book is available. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be a major issue. How do you replace physical distribution in the bricks and mortar bookstore mm-hmm. and the awareness that generates when people walk in and look at the book with a virtual presence online? But another distribution model is the one pioneered by Amazon in which they let regular customers know that a title is available that, based on their previous purchases, uh, might be something they're interested in. Tony, in the last year, how many books have you bought because Amazon let you know that titles are available? Oh, one out of 50 or 60, perhaps. I think in some ways that answers the question. I'm not sure that it's a terribly effective marketing Mm -hmm. technique. Okay. I think what will evolve, what will have to evolve, is new ways of letting people browse the content. Amazon, for example, will let you look at a chapter of a book. Mm-hmm. They'll look you, let you look inside a book. One of the interesting things about a Kindle, and I have a Kindle, is that you can generally download the first chapter of any book before you buy it. And you get a sense of what the book's about, the author's style, etc., and then click on buy. And I think that's very effective. Mm-hmm. Again, the question is how do we get people to download that first chapter, to look at the book, to look inside the book, when there's an almost unlimited number of books available online – uh, awareness is going to be a problem. If we're building a, a model for the future in which, in, in which we're redefining what a book mm-hmm. is in terms of the value-added content, the graphs, the video, um, that makes producing a book a much more complicated process, I would think. Um, and that in itself has to change the publishing business. Do you think that, that there's uh, an infrastructure that is ready to uh, tackle that, that kind of task? I think it will emerge. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how well developed it is at this point, but mm-hmm. there's a trade-off. The, the primary task is still there. You need to structure a book in a way that's interesting to readers, communicates information, flows, is easy to read. Uh, some of the new add-ons, graphics, videos, etc., will be costly. The trade-off is you no longer have to print the physical book, mm-hmm. and you no longer have to distribute it through brick and mortar bookstores, or may not have to distribute right. to bigger border bookstores. And it's the latter that tends to be very expensive and time-consuming also. Okay. We don't see a free model emerging for that like the newspapers adopted, I propose. I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Knowledge.